Welcome to the Jurassic Park cast, the Jurassic Park podcast where guests chat with me about Michael Crichton's 1990 novel, Jurassic Park, and also not that too. My name is Ryan Rogers, and I'm a big, dumb Jurassic Park fan. Welcome to episode 65, the epilogue in San Jose, recorded September 27th, 2023. Thanks for joining me today. A continued thank you to Christoph Oaks of Snail, S-N-A-L-E. Check out his incredible albums on Spotify and on Bandcamp. This is the grand finale, guys. I wanted to play all kinds of music from Snail's two albums, but I kind of experimented with it, and it was a little intrusive to the overall show, so promise me this. Click on the link, give his album a run-through. I've never regretted it. Today's intro, you'll recognize a sacrifice to the inhuman creature. From Snail's self-titled debut album, it's the first track I ever sampled, so this is a callback to the pilot episode. And I've got a little bit of late bloomer here as well towards the end. I found a great fit for that, and frankly, it's one of my favorite songs Chris has ever done. And the outro is from Buzzsaw Party Boy off his follow-up album Charlemagne, which just rocks. Here's some snail trivia. Chris says he wrote the music and most of the lyrics for Buzzsaw Party Boy in Norway in 2018 while loitering in a music store called the Trondheim 4 Sound. Uh, he says the store really should have just kicked him out, but nobody ever did. <laughs> but man, I'd, I'd love to have been a fly on the wall while he was there jamming this song out for the first time. Wouldn't that have been cool? Uh, and also keep your eyes peeled, I guess, for a little Jurassic Park music box my wife gave me. Uh, I'll be playing that a little bit as well. We have some corrections today. In the last episode, Dr. Persons was wondering if there were a chupacabra in the novel, and he was really close. I wish I could have recalled this at the time, and in time, it wasn't a chupacabra, it was the Hoopia, remember? The strange, mythical, vampiric, child-snatching legend that Crichton brings up is the Hoopia. But a great callback from the opening chapter to include today, during the closing chapter. Uh, so an excellent chance to bring everything full circle. Also, you may have noticed a weird change in audio quality when I mentioned Dr. Spencer Lucas because I'm a fool and mispronounced his name. <laughs> I felt awful about it and I thought maybe I could swap in some audio of me saying it correctly, but obviously uh, that tricked nobody. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry. Uh, sorry, Dr. Lucas. Sorry, you guys. Uh, the, the good news is there's very little room left for me to make any more mistakes in. Uh, but with this being the last episode and, uh, and finally, I'm going to apologize in advance for the sign-off today. It's hard for me to actually predict what's going to happen, you know, an hour down the road, but uh, I'm going to be doing the final outro in one take, uh, just to give it to a however it comes out. It's likely going to sound like a bunch of emotional blubbering, because I'm not very good at goodbyes, but uh, if you feel like skipping the last few minutes, I wouldn't blame you for that, because uh, it might be a tough one. All right, dinosaur news. Let's talk about two new dinosaurs. We'll get... Uh, we'll go with a big one and a small one. First, the big one. Uh, the Journal of Historical Biology published on September 21st, 2023, a new titanosaurian sauropod from the Upper Cretaceous of Zhangji Province, southern China. The others have described Zhangji Titan Ganjuensis, recovered from the Nanshang formation of the Jiangxi Province in southern China. It's been declared a new species due to features on its centra, neural arches, ribs, and neural spines, and a trip through the phylogenetic analysis machine suggests it is in the, quote, deeply nested titanosauriform clade Lognocosauria. Uh, the new discovery, quote, demonstrates the presence of both early diverging and late diverging titanosauriform sauropods in the late Cretaceous Ganju dinosaur fauna, says the paper. The holotype NHMG034061, 
housed at the Natural History Museum of Guangxi Zhuang Autonomous Region, was excavated from the Nanxiong Formation, as we said, is comprised of seven vertebrae, including three cervicals and four dorsals, two articulated cervical ribs, and three articulated dorsal ribs. The generic name Zhangxi is in reference to the fossil locality in Zhangxi Province, southern China, and Titan in Greek means giant, as in this case, a giant dragon. The specific name Ganjuensis refers to the fossil locality of Nankang County in Gangju City, and so this becomes a Zhangji giant from Gangju. The authors have interpreted the fossils to be from a mature individual. The paper discusses that now, quote, as many as 15 titanosaur forms are known from the late Cretaceous of China, including the Ryangosaurus, which is one of the few dinosaurs that actually sounds like a rhinosaurus. There are very few that even come a little close to being a rhinosaurus. So the Ryangosaurus is a... Uh, is worth a shout out. There we go. Uh, what this ultimately means is the authors have had a lot of other titanosaurs to compare their remains against before declaring this unique species. What does all that comparative analysis get you? Well, it comes up with this following statement. Zhangji Titan Gangjuensis is erected based on a partial skeleton. It displays some features suggesting a titanosaurian affinity. Zhangji Titan is unique among Asian titanosaur forms by possessing the deeply bifurcated posterior cervical and anterior dorsal neural spines, and their dorsal ventrally compressed posterior cervical and anterior dorsal centra. The discovery of Zhangji Titan increased the diversity of the titanosaurians in the late Cretaceous of Asia. There you go. In other news, the journal Nature published a new avialin theropod from an emerging Jurassic terrestrial fauna on September 6, 2023. The new specimen has been named Fujianvenator prodigiosus, and it's one of the, quote, stratigraphically youngest and geographically southernmost Jurassic avialins, which is known from the Tithonian Age of China. Now, I referenced which well-known dinosaurs are also from the Tithonian Age of the late Jurassic invokes. Almost none of the dinosaurs are recognizable or well-known. That was a strange time, the Tithonian. Uh, you'll likely know Archaeopteryx and Compsognathus, both known from around Germany. And we covered the Chilisaurus, which is a strange animal with both Saurischian and Ornithischian features, uh, back in episode 2 of the podcast. The Tithonian is sort of the last age of the Jurassic, perhaps when that great extinction event happened, uh, and that kind of ended things for things like Stegosaurus and Diplodocus and gave... Uh, rise to the new ceratopsians and marginocephalians, give them rain. Uh, the iguanodontids emerge after that point. So a lot of things got extincted in the Tithonian. So that was a, an age where things weren't uh, really blossoming, that's for sure, before the early Cretaceous when things went crazy all over again. Nonetheless, Fujian venator is an early diverging species among the AVLN line, making it, quote, crucial to understand the evolution of the characteristic bird bow plan and to reconcile phylogenetic controversies over controversies over the origin of birds. The paper says, quote, birds are descended from non-AVL and theropod dinosaurs of the late Jurassic period, but the earliest phase of this evolutionary process remains unclear, owing to the exceedingly sparse and spatio-temporally restricted fossil record. Fujianvenator shares, quote, an unusual set of morphological features with other stem AVLNs, truodontids and dromaeosaurids, showing the effects of evolutionary mosaicism in deep AVLN phylogeny. Fujianvonator is, quote, distinct from all other Mesozoic AVLN and non-AVLN theropods in having a particularly elongated hind limb, suggestive of a terrestrial or wading lifestyle, in contrast with other early AVLNs, which exhibit morphological adaptations for arboreal or aerial environments. The researchers add that the appearance of adaptation for wading is consistent with the, quote, diverse assemblage of vertebrates dominated by aquatic and semi-aquatic species, including teleosts, which are fishes, testudines, which are turtles, and choristodeers, which is an extinct type of reptile. 
Uh, the name Fujian Venator derives from Fujian, referring to the Fujian province in China, and the Latin Venator means hunter, and its species name Prodigiosus is Latin for bizarre, making this the bizarre hunter from Fujian. The holotype IVPP V31985, housed at the Institute for Vertebrate Paleontology and Paleoanthropology, was uncovered from the Nanwan Formation. It's comprised of a partial articulated skeleton preserved on a slab and counter slab, missing the skull, neck, and the end of its tail. And all in all, it might have weighed like less than two pounds, and it was similar in size to a pheasant. Now, unlike a wading pheasant, Fujianvenator's metacarpals suggest it would have had flexible, grasping fingers. Unlike in other more derived AVLNs whose metacarpals form a single immobile unit that primarily serves as the attachment site. So there are a lot of indications that this is a type of dinosaur early, early in line on its way to evolving distinct bird-like characteristics, but still retains forms which are very similar to dromaeosaurids by virtue of its hands and legs. All right, with the corrections and the dinosaur news out of the way, please let me introduce you to my special guest and final guest for this episode. Please welcome the terrific return of research scientist and dinosaur paleontologist from the Canadian Museum of uh, Nature, Jordan Mallon. Dr. Mallon, today I think the theme of the day is endings. And I think you come back for to help me with the, the send the show off on a high note. So uh, we're recording the last episode, episode 65 today. So thank you. I'm really glad you came back for it. It's a great honor to, <laughs> to be part of the final episode. So thanks for having me back, Ryan. It's good. So this happens to coincidentally, do you believe in coincidences? Uh, sure. Why not? Okay. They happen. They're, they're a real thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, so this is episode 65. It just the way I chopped up all the chapters and stuff like that, it wound up being 65 episodes. Uh, and this is kind of coincidental and fun in a sort of way because 65 is related to dinosaurs uh, in a sort of colloquial number of millions of years ago that they went extinct. So that's kind of a, a fun, just coincidence. I certainly didn't design it that way, so good for us. <laughs> I'm glad I'm glad for you that you didn't have to do 65 million chapters of, of your episodes because mm -hmm. that, would, that would be quite the listen. So do I understand correctly that uh, the 65 is like academically closer to like 66 million year, years ago? It has that... Uh, has that been shifted a little bit to the end Cretaceous extinction event? Yes, I think it rounds. I think it rounds up to sixty-six uh, now, as opposed to sixty-five, given some of the dating that's been done in recent years. So, you know, you'll re read all the books from uh, ten plus years ago. You'll 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 see the number sixty-five million years to date the the mass extinction of the dinosaurs. But now you'll you'll read sixty-six. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> but even then, they were talking about the meteor uh, striking, and I believe even in the 90s, it was still believed to have landed in the Yucatan Peninsula. Has, um, has, as that date has changed, has there been any other new interpretations that um, more, more fully reveal what may have happened during the, those last moments for the dinosaurs? Well, well, certainly the interpretation that, that a, a meteor struck the Earth at that date has not changed. You know, we, we've got the impact crater in the Yucatan Peninsula. Uh, maybe, well, I know there's ongoing work um, studying and, and, you know, dredging up the sea bottom where that, uh, and, and coring where that uh, meteor impact struck. I, it's, uh, to be honest with you, it's not research I've been following very closely. Um, but there is ongoing research about sort of the fallout, so to speak, of that that impact. Um, and there's a new, there's an exciting new site. Uh, I believe it's in North Dakota, uh, the so-called Tanis site. That um, it's a deposit. Uh, apparently, uh, a, 
effectively like a tsunami deposit um, that 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 captures the the last day of the dinosaurs. Mm. Uh, the idea being that this tsunami was uh, a result of that that meter impact, and there's research slowly coming out of there related to some of the the fish preserved there. There's dinosaurs preserved there as well. Uh, you know, there's there's meteorite fallout there, and so it's if the site is what it's purported to be, then it's enormously interesting. But uh, the the research coming out of there so far has been slow and and understandably so uh you know science proceeds at a, at a glacial pace for better or worse mm. um so it's going to be i think decades before we really know what the site is all about but it certainly seems intriguing so far mm. and certainly if you want to make a profound statement about something like that where so many people will be interested you want to double check your work i guess before you it, it'll take a while to make sure you're you're confident in what you're going to to finalize <laughs> what people will accept. Uh, my, 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 my understanding is that there's only one research team in there so far. And mm -hmm. so what needs to happen ultimately is that there needs to be various research uh, teams going in there, checking each other's work and uh, sort of verifying everyone's findings in the long run. Mm -hmm. Well, exciting stuff to see what will emerge eventually. I think that's the, uh, the, the, the science doesn't move fast, but it, uh, it does <laughs> move forwards, I guess. <laughs> That's a good way of putting it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I know that uh, back in the 90s and probably the 80s, all the documentaries ended with um, a meteorite streaking across the sky and a Tyrannosaurus yelling at it. And then uh, there is an explosion. And then you see mammals climbing out of the skulls of dinosaurs. And that was kind of the end of the story. Um, and it, it was supposed to therefore the dawn of mammals arrives and you know you know like a mouse or something comes out of uh, comes out of the one but uh but according to a journal of scientific reports in july earlier this year some mammals couldn't wait for the extinction event to eat the insides of dinosaurs um i saw that you were a co-author on an extraordinary fossil captures the struggle of existence during the mesozoic in which um perhaps you can pronounce these things there's a chinese gobi conodontid mammal uh, and it might have. How about you tell me what it was called? <laughs> uh, it's it's called Rapinomammus. Okay. Is the is the genus name Rapinomammus? Yeah. It's a uh, you know as far as mammals go today, it's not, not especially big. You know, it might be the size of well, we estimate it was about uh, three kilograms, so mm -hmm. roughly the size of a of a house cat maybe. And and um, but as far as mammals went during the, the Cretaceous period, the age of dinosaurs, this was one of the big ones. Mm -hmm. In fact, they they didn't get a whole lot bigger. This is top three for sure, uh, size-wise. So uh, a, a fairly sizable mammal for the time. But what was really exciting about that paper was that it described, well, I guess of the fossil itself, is that there's a, a Cetacosaurus, which people will know is the parrot-faced dinosaur that has the famous cloaca. And... Uh, uh, <laughs> It, uh, it was being predated by the mammal. So it was actually a dinosaur being eaten, or at least arguably it, was, it appeared to be eating uh, the dinosaur, which is pretty fascinating. That, that was our interpretation. Um, you know, and it sounds rather sensational by admission, but you, know, you can capture sensational things in the fossil record. So it, it's, to my mind, it's not completely uh, out of the ordinary. We give various reasons for why we think this was an act of predation uh, sort of captured as a moment in time rather than uh, a scavenging event. Uh, you know, and I, 
I had to do a lot of media for this uh, <laughs> back when this paper came out. Uh, so the, the examples that we give, uh, well, for one, the mammal is sort of sitting on top of this attackosaur as though it were trying to, to subdue it. Uh, and you wouldn't necessarily expect that if the mammal were just scavenging this attackosaur. You could, sure, you could climb on top of the animal and eat it, but you could just as easily uh, eat its insides from, from the ground, right? There's nothing about the scavenging hypothesis that would predict the location of that mammal. Mm -hmm. But if the mammal were actually trying to actively uh, predate uh, or prey upon the, the Cetaxor, then you then you would expect it to be, you know, the mammal on top trying to hold the, mm -hmm. hold the thing down. Um, plus the fact that uh, the, hind, the hind foot of the mammal is actually trapped within the folded leg of the dinosaur. And if that dinosaur were already dead by the time the mammal found it, uh, I wouldn't expect the dinosaur to collapse mm. and onto the mammal and trap its foot. Mm. It looks like it. It looks like the two became intertwined while they were both alive that way. So, um, yeah, there's various reasons we have that we outline in the paper for why we think this was more likely a predation event than not. Mm. And you know, people can disagree with us. This goes back to what I was saying earlier <laughs> about the, the having the the need to go back and 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 for independent people to check our research and, and either verify or, or reject our findings. Mm -hmm. But this is where we stand for the time being, at least. I like the sound of it because you don't expect somebody to be like Greco-Roman wrestling with uh, with something they're scavenging. That's just uh, normally you don't cuddle that close with something you plan to eat. <laughs> yeah, it's an odd. It, it would be an odd thing, I think. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. I like this idea that there's mammals. For me, there was always a blind spot because I, for whatever reason, growing up said, just dinosaurs, thank you. And I don't worry too much about whales and I don't worry too much about the mammals, although they were amazing looking and stuff like that. And, or the reptiles or the bugs or all that other stuff, the fish, so many fish. Um, but when it comes to vertebrate paleontology, dinosaurs get all like the stars on the Walk of Fame as well. Uh, but from your experience, if someone were only interested in dinosaurs, what would they be missing out on? Well, of course, uh, yeah, dinosaurs didn't live in a vacuum. You know, they had to, they had to eat. And so if you want to know something about the dinosaurs, then you need to know about uh, what they're eating, you know, and, and to know what they're eating, you need to know something about the plants in their environments. You need to know something about the insects in their environments. You need to know something about the mammals in their environments, because those were all sort of fair game as far as uh, prey are concerned, so to speak. Um, so yeah, I I think it's important to as paleontologists that we certainly as dinosaur paleontologists, not to sort of lose the bigger picture, mm -hmm. as it were. Um, and so, I like to think about dinosaurs as living animals. Pa dinosaur paleo paleoecology is what really interests me, um, and and so you know I, I I make an effort to think about the bigger picture, even though I work on dinosaurs. You know, I spent uh, some time in the field this summer and we spent quite a bit of time locating and, and GPS marking and collecting fossil wood because um, I'm, I'm, I'm curious about the, what the forest environment was like back then. And, uh, you know, I'm by no means a, a, a paleo plant person, but uh, at least if we can collect this stuff and document where it came from and, and pinpoint, for example, fossil logs, uh, then someone who does know what they're doing can go back to the, the, those sites and, and study them. That's cool. Well, that's good that you mentioned the, the field work because I, I spotted a tweet from earlier this month or maybe this summer uh, 
that you guys had come up with, quote, lots of little goodies out of the field this year. Um, and I saw, I know that you, you mentioned before, you keep going back to that uh, Centrosaur mega bone bed. Um, is that where you went again? And what sort of things did you pull out of there beyond uh, forested wood? Uh, what other things were you finding out there this year? Yeah, um, so I've been work, working that Centrosaurus mega bone bed that you mentioned since 2015, off and on. You know, COVID kind of threw a mm. wrench in the woods. But um, at the end of last field season, uh, one of my students, Ergon Snyder, found the back edge of a Centrosaurus frill. And what's so interesting about the bone bed is all the material in that bone bed is uh, articulated or at least... Um, not completely dissociated. Usually you find these horned dinosaur bone bits and all the bones are, are intermixed. Um, and in this case, the, the bone bed, uh, the bones are not intermixed. So you can, you can see individuals within the, the bone bed. You don't have to disentangle them and try and figure out which bone went with which. Mm. So that's why we've been focusing on the site. It's got a, it's got sort of what we say a, a unique taphonomic signature, so to speak. Um, and, and so that's why I've been documenting this site. And as I say, Ergon found the back edge of, uh, of one of these Centrosaurus frills poking out of, um, uh, sort of of the cliffside that we're working into late last field season. And I didn't have the time to collect that frill. And I, I knew it would lead to more of the skull given the, the, the nature of the, the assemblage. So. The plan this year was to get that skull out, which would make three skulls that we've got out of that bone bed now. Um, and and it took us a month to do it. Uh, the rock is is a very uh, crumbly mudstone, and it uh, the bone is very crumbly as a result. It drinks it drinks a lot of glue or consolidant, as we call it, <laughs> and so it's very slow to work. But uh, the good news is that we managed to get that that skull out of the ground. We've got the, the whole thing. We've got from the back of the frill to the tip of the nose um, in pieces, mind you, but that's pretty typical. Um, so I wrapped up my work in the bone bed. I, I told my students, we're not going any further. I could spend another 30 years excavating this thing and I don't want to. I have other things I wanna do in my career. I've got enough data now that I think I can say something interesting. So the, the next couple of years will be spent, you know, preparing all the material we have and documenting it and mapping it properly and, and what have you. So we got that skull out and we got some goodies, like I said, in that tweet that you referenced. Uh, you know, we my research assistant, Shaman Pan, found uh, another horned dinosaur skull uh, a little further away. Uh, partial skull, mind you, but it's probably something like a Centrosaurus again. Uh, we found an interesting site that was very rich in shed tyrannosaur teeth uh, and snail shells. And uh, what else did we get out of it that was so interesting? Oh, a lot of pine cones, you know, redwood oh. cones, um, which I, I've just never seen. It, it, it was rich in those three things. We found lots of other stuff, but, it, you know, we got a, a dozen uh a dozen cones out of that site and probably a dozen shed tyrannosaur teeth and a dozen or so snail shells, which was just sort of an unusual uh, situation going on there. So I've got a student now who's working on this as part of an undergraduate project trying to interpret this site. Mm, interesting. And so one of the other things I spotted too was um, 
I mean, you didn't mention it, but it looks like there were, you were a co-author with Dave Evans and Tom Dudgeon, where you found skin impressions for a champsosaur as well. You're finding really neat stuff out there. Yeah, Tom Tom Dudgeon, he's a, uh, a former student of mine. He did his master's work with me on champsosaurs. Okay. And um, in the course of doing his research, we were down at the Royal Ontario Museum, uh, where David Evans works. He's a colleague of mine. And, um, and Dave said, hey, Tom, you want to see something interesting? And he pulled out this beautiful champsosaur that they had purchased. Uh, uh, I believe it was out of Montana, out of the Judith River Formation or uh, rather two medicine formation. And um, and so, yeah, we were all sort of salivating over it because it's one of the nicest Champsosaur skeletons I've seen. Um, there are many nice ones out there, I suppose, but this was up there and it was all perfectly articulated and three-dimensional. And um, and it what's important about it is it's the first uh, uh, Champsosaur identifiable to the species level from the two medicine formation and it turns out to be a species called champsosaurus lindowi which is otherwise known from alberta so it was a bit of a range extension we know now that this particular species extends down into montana into the two medicine formation which was interesting you know it sort of interesting for a for a paleo nerd so to speak <laughs> maybe the average maybe the average person wouldn't find it quite as exciting as we did but um, it's certainly a beautiful fossil it preserves skin as you mentioned or at least skin impressions. Uh, Tom was Tom was lucky to get to work on it. Yeah, well, that's really cool. And that's just another piece of the, this ecosystem. So, is a champsosaur a crocodile or a crocodile descendant, or is it just not yet a crocodile, or there's an extinct line that uh, and crocodiles are They're something an, else? Or they are an extinct lineage that have nothing to do with <laughs> crocodile. Okay, but they do converge okay. on a on a very similar body plan. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was looking at the and exactly how they're related to other reptiles is still a bit up in the air. No one seems to be certain as to where they fit exactly in the tree of life, but we we do know that they're not on the, the crocodile branch, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And so, whatever similarities they share, they they're they're just superficial. Okay, you know they they look like you know gavials with these long kind of sort of uh, pincher snouted. Uh, um, crocodilians yeah when i looked at the skull i i thought it looked like the inverse of what you'd expect when you see an ankylosaur club in that the 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 base is so big and round and then you get this little little very narrow uh stick going out and it just looks like yeah um the, the tail of an ankylosaur i mean probably not for real i'm sure the tail of an ankylosaur would look totally different if i saw one for real but uh, <laughs> but just the shape of I that skull is so strange yeah yeah, the tail has what's called the handle uh, part of the club, where it's basically a series of, of co-ossified vertebrae that are very, you know, tightly bound together um, by uh, by tendons and whatnot. And uh, and then, of course, you got the bulbous head on the end, which would be the club. Yeah, and and champsosaur skulls are very narrow up up front. Their their snouts are very narrow, and they ex they expand enormously for for large jaw muscles near the back. So. Uh, yeah, it's it's not a bad comparison. I never thought about it that way. Oh, it's just what it looked like to me at first. Well, this is fun because uh, you mean you're literally and figuratively, I guess, fleshing out the ecosystem by by describing these things. I, when I I think of dinosaurs and we compare them about like how they derived and and gained new characteristics, it's always seemed to be argued that it was done 
as a result or in association with other dinosaurs. But of course, the ecosystem, I mean, the only time you really hear about an adaptation that they kind of describe as something that would help them against something that's not a dinosaur is when you catch like somebody say, oh, this is good for fish. <laughs> and other than that, like, mm. um, but they must have been certainly trying to chase, you know, adapting to avoid and, and capture almost things that were not dinosaurs all the time including plants and stuff like that. But we always seem to be caught in this this paradigm of only discussing dinosaurs, or maybe it's just me, <laughs> like maybe the general public, of only describing how they relate to one another as a, as dinosaurs, but not necessarily in the greater scheme of things. And so, um, I, I think there's some truth to that, Ryan. Yeah, um, there's certainly, a, you know, we're, we're so many of us are, are biased towards just thinking about the dinosaurs because... They're, they're what we might call charismatic megafauna. You know, they're mm -hmm. these big, impressive things that, that make you go, wow. Uh, and, and they're almost alien to us in that we have nothing like them alive today. Whereas, although there were dragonflies around at the time of dinosaurs, we kind of know what a dragonfly looks like. And so, ah, that, that's just another dragonfly, you know. So there's, there's some of that. I, I, I suspect part of it is just a bias in the fossil record, too, where... You know, it's sometimes unless you got very specific circumstances, you don't often preserve uh, the smaller stuff. You know, it's pretty rare to find good mammal fossils, certainly in places like Alberta or Montana, like we were just talking about. You rarely find complete skeletons. Usually you get jaws and teeth and that's all your the rest is left up to the imagination, you know. And so they're, they, they might be easy to forget about uh, from that perspective, just because uh, out of sight, out of mind, I suppose. Uh, same goes for, for all the insects. And not only that, but um, traces of predation on those things are, are hard to come mm -hmm. by, right? We've never, we've never found an example of a, of a leaf with a dinosaur bite taken out of it. Yeah. Sadly, they must exist, but uh, I know of no such example. And it would be pretty hard to tell, really. Um, it would probably just be like look like a leaf that was missing an end. And what took a bite of, out of it, who knows? Mm -hmm. uh, and the same goes for, you know, insects. We've never seen a, a, a dragonfly that was bitten in half by a dinosaur and preserved in the fossil record. Those traces are really, really hard to come by. However, we do find uh, dinosaur bones with bite marks from other dinosaurs yeah. on them. You know, because they were big enough to leave those marks on bones. Uh, and And... We do find traces from invertebrates on dinosaur bones. I'm actually I'm working on a ankylosaur from China right now that shows just such a trace, and we do know of rare instances of mammal gnaw marks on dinosaur bones, but those are comparatively rare, and so again, out of sight, out of mind. We so there's there's various sort of biases that I think cause us to think about. You know how dinosaurs are interacting with one another, and not necessarily with yeah. their 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 outside community, so to speak, as a whole. But it's no less important. Yeah, I think I was hearing about a a micro raptor. They found like the hand of a mammal in, or something like that earlier. But uh, yeah, few and far between. Yeah, that was fish published by, by some colleagues of mine, David Hone and. I think uh, Hans Larsen and uh, Alex Dechecki, I think, was on that paper. And, and yeah, this was another example of uh, of a dinosaur eating a mammal, mm. which, again, sort of plays into the story we mentioned earlier about this mammal eating a dinosaur, which <laughs> which makes that interaction so much more interesting because uh, the tables have turned. 
Well, I never thought about it, but imagine a world where the ceratopsians, the, the formative little ones that grow the shield and the horns, were developing de developing those features as a result to combat against these rapinomamuses instead of <laughs> tyrannosaurs or something like that. What a strange, uh, different way to look at it. Uh, <laughs> that, that, yeah, just the, the fossil record doesn't encourage, you know? Yeah, well, in that case, you know, the big, big horned dinosaurs like Triceratops and you know, Chasmosaurus and Styracosaurus and the ones we're all, we all know and love, you know, I don't think they were, I, I don't <laughs> think the mammals were posing much of a threat to them, but certainly the earlier ones mm. like Cetacosaurus that you mentioned. Yeah. Uh, those I, I'd say we know fairly definitively now were, were threatened by some of those larger mammals. Mm -hmm. So how that might've influenced the development of the headgear. Oh, it's hard to say, but, it's fun to speculate. Yeah, for sure. Well, you mentioned that that incredible Champsosaurus specimen came from the Royal Ontario Museum. And I know that um, the Royal Ontario Museum and the Royal Tyrell Museum both have royal in their name, and they get a lot of credit in Canada. Um, and so I was wondering, perhaps, uh, <laughs> uh, maybe we could you know, talk about the Canadian Museum of Nature and let, let uh, you kind of celebrate what happens there. And we'll just uh, no shade at the other wonderful Canadian museums, but... Um, um, Maybe if you put Royal in front of the Canadian Museum of Nature, that it would be <laughs> pop up in the searches more. But um, yeah, what sort of, when you talk about, uh, I, I was looking at some of the cool exhibits that you guys have there. Um, it's been a while since I visited, and I know my son wants to return this fall. Um, but when people go to the Canadian Museum of Nature, it's awesome. What can, uh, what can people expect to see on exhibit when they come to visit? Mm. Uh, yeah, we've got all kinds of stuff on the go right now uh as far as the the exhibits are concerned actually right now we've got a we've got a temporary exhibit on on rainforests and we've got live animals up there including a sloth and you know various reptiles of different sorts snakes and and lizards and what have you uh and I, I can't recall exactly how long that that exhibit's going for but it's temporary and so if you want to learn something about the rainforest come and check it out sooner than later. But cool. our, our permanent galleries, we've got uh, a gallery about minerals and, and gems and what have you. We've got gallery on, uh, we've got the, the water gallery that, that speaks to sort of um, uh, marine ecosystems. There's a, the centerpiece of that gallery is a, a, a blue whale skeleton. And it's not even a fully grown one. And, and yet it manages to fill the entire uh, wing of of that gallery it's just absolutely massive uh, and, and really impressive we've got uh, a nice gallery that talks about uh, focuses on on research and ecosystems of the arctic that's a relatively new one that's worth checking out we've got a, a bird gallery but but near and dear to my heart of course is the fossil gallery and and maybe for the, the purpose of your your podcast and your listeners we can talk about that, but um, <laughs> that, in a nutshell, is what we have. And there's more that I've forgotten too. We've got a we've got a mammal gallery with some very classic dioramas in there that that I grew up with as a kid. And if you've been here before, Ryan, you, I'm sure you're familiar with them too. They've been around forever, but they're some of my favorite exhibits here at the museum. Is those those mammal dioramas? Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're so wild looking. All the knobs and horns and everything that comes out of those mammals is insane. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't disagree. Well, I think when we first uh, met uh, once upon a time, you'd mentioned that you guys have a tremendous amount of holotype specimens in collection. 
Um, mm. If I were to guess, I would maybe say the Styracosaurus is there? Yeah, that's on display in the gallery, yeah. We have the holotype of Styracosaurus discovered in, I think it was 1913, in Dinosaur Provincial Park, what is now Dinosaur Provincial Park. Um, yeah, you mentioned earlier that, you know, people tend to think of certainly of the Royal Tyrrell Museum as being sort of Canada's dinosaur museum. And, you know, I've got lots of friends and colleagues there, so I, I won't begrudge them for that. No. But uh, <laughs> I, I like to uh, brag about the fact that, yeah, you guys might have a lot of dinosaurs, but here at the Canadian Museum of Nature, what makes us special is the fact that we've got the most holotypes for dinosaurs. And a holotype is... is um, is effectively uh, the first of its kind. So if I want to name a new species, you know, Gryposaurus notabilis, we have the, the holotype of that. That is to say, we have the skeleton on which that name is based for all intents and purposes. And so we've got, you know, the holotype of Gryposaurus, we've got the holotype of Styracosaurus, we've got the holotype of Chasmosaurus belli and Chasmosaurus uh, russelli and Chasmosaurus irvinensis and the holotype of, you name it, uh, Edmontosaurus uh, regalis. We've got we've got many 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 dinosaur holotypes. So, you know, if you find a fossil in the field and you go, hmm, I think this might be, this looks like it might be Edmontosaurus regalis. How do I check that? Well, you would have mm. to come here to the Canadian Museum of Nature to see that holotype specimen and and make that decision for yourself via, you know, comparison with it. That's really incredible. Gotcha. And uh, I think I was looking at, I, I went through some old, old pictures that I could find. Uh, they're not too old. We'll say in the last five years, trying to see what else you guys had on display. It looks like you had a, a terrific Carnotaurus mount. Um, yeah, we do. Yeah. Yeah. Painted white as though the, the bone were fresh. And there aren't too many places you can go in North America to see it a Carnotaurus skeleton because, uh, of course, Carnotaurus is a South American animal, mm -hmm. but uh, we've got a, a Carnotaurus there. We've got, well, certainly when you enter the fossil gallery, the first thing you'll see is uh, Displetosaurus kind of hovering above you, Displetosaurus being a close cousin of T-Rex. All the kids come in and they look up and they, of course, assume it's T-Rex. And yeah. you just, you only need to hang around the door to, to hear that, oh, it's a T-Rex. And it's not a T-Rex. It's it's something much more rare, I would say, Displetosaurus, which is uh, quite exciting. We've got a good display of horned dinosaurs. You mentioned Styracosaurus. There's Chasmosaurus urbanensis. Uh, we've got a Triceratops on display. We've got a complete uh, hind skeleton, post-cranium, we'd call it, of something that's been attributed to Anchiceratops, where the bones are all still in place, which is very rare. It's one of... Uh, maybe only two uh, or three complete horned dinosaur uh, skeletons that I'm aware of post-crania. We've, uh, we've got Canada's oldest dinosaur mount on display as well. Um, it's uh, uh, one of these Edmontosaurus, collected in 1912 in the summer and put on display by that winter, collected by the Sternberg family of fossil hunters. And this is Canada's first dinosaur mount ever displayed uh, uh, and as i say it went on display over a hundred years ago now and and you can still see it so it, it it's pretty exciting the fossil gallery we've all we we don't just have dinosaurs but we've got displays on uh the the western interior seaway so you know 75 million years ago 100 million years ago uh for much of the end of the cretaceous period uh, 
the north america was divided north south by a shallow seaway and living in that seaway were various creatures marine reptiles giant turtles swimming birds and so we've got a display on those and we also have towards the back of the gallery a display of mammals you know that talks about the evolution of horses and the evolution of of whales and sort of the rise to dominance of the mammals following the extinction of the dinosaurs so there's certainly lots to look at lots to take in i saw a post from not long ago and it mentioned that you guys were working on one of the largest triceratops skulls i don't know if that's finished or if that means it takes a long time or but what's the status of of that one it's nearly finished yeah it's been a long it's been a long time coming and part of the problem is that that skull came from um well that skull was collected in 1929 uh uh, in southern saskatchewan by charlie sternberg and when he collected it he had been collecting at that point he'd been collecting dinosaurs for 30 or 40 years with his uh at least partly with his his dad and prior to then he'd collected many triceratops in wyoming uh and and uh and elsewhere in canada and and he said when he he found this skull he said this is the biggest one i've ever seen which is saying something the skull's not complete but it's got a complete frill on it and, and he just he he thought it was remarkable just how huge this thing was so that's why i took an interest in it uh i'm interested in in sort of the story of triceratops in canada and how that aligns with how we think triceratops is evolving in places like montana and so i've been working with a student on this question for a number of years now and part of that story is prepping this skull and just comparing the measurements to other uh, triceratops that we know of south of the border and seeing you know was charlie right is this is this thing truly a monster so far it seems to be as whether or not it's the biggest per se you know those comparisons are hard to make because Mm -hmm. you know as i say the skull is incomplete and so how do you compare that to another triceratops specimen that might preserve another set of fossil bones and yet appears to be equally sizable it's it's hard to make those comparisons and you've got to run some uh some statistics and some uh regressions to be able to make those comparisons uh and and make them carefully mind you um, so that's what we're in the middle of doing right now. But I, I can say with certainty that it is a huge skull. I bet you it's whether impressive, it's yeah. Uh, yeah, whether it's the biggest or not is, is still hard to say. We're still prepping it, but um, we're, we're nearing the final phases. It, it's another example of a skull that's preserved in a, in a crumbly mudstone. Oh. Uh, and so the, 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 the state of the bone is not as good as it could be, uh, which makes working, which makes work very slow. Uh, but we're we're nearing the finish line. Awesome. I've heard, and I don't know if this is on display or maybe in collection, that you have an exceptional pteranodon there as well. Yeah, we do. That that's on display. Is okay. Uh, often when we find uh, these these pterosaurs, certainly in North America, pteranodon we we find very commonly out in oceanic uh, sediments, and um, uh, that is to say fossilized oceanic <laughs> in the geological wreck. And, uh, and so we think that these, these pterosaurs were probably swimming out or, or, or rather flying about uh, over the ocean 
dying out there on the wing and and then being buried at the bottom of the ocean. And so, yes, we when we renovated the gallery, the, the last renovation of our fossil gallery was in 2006. That's when the gallery reopened to the public. When, the, when we were renovating it, we were able to purchase this pteranodon fossil from uh, Mike Trebold and, and his outfit. And what's so spectacular about it is, is yeah, the fact that it's uh, relatively complete. You know, there are many, many, many pteranodon fossils out there, thousands of them. Uh, but uh, complete skeletons are very rare. And most of our knowledge about these animals uh, comes from, you know, a, a wing here, uh, a jawbone there, and then we sort of cobble together our skeletal reconstructions that way. This is one of the few instances where we have the whole skeleton together. The, the head is associated with the postcranium. Uh, the skeleton, sadly, is not articulated, but all the bones are together, and they're in in they're they're preserved well three dimensionally too. Very typically in these marine strata, the sedimentary layers are are thin and flat, and pterosaurs are notorious for having thin bones, mm -hmm. and so their bone tends to get crushed pretty readily. They look like pieces of paper when you <laughs> when you get them out of the rock. But uh, in this case, they're they're still three dimensionally preserved, so they're excited. They're exciting for that reason. Awesome. All right, I had two more uh, specimens I want to specifically ask about. One's not a specimen. Do you have Dale Russell's dinosauroid there? Yes, we do. Yeah, not on display, mind right. you, but uh, yeah, this is Dale Russell. Of course, worked for the Canadian Museum of Nature for thirty years, uh, from sixty-five to ninety-five, and I believe it was nineteen eighty-two that he published this dinosauroid. You know, the sort of uh, evolved uh, Stenonicosaurus that that effectively became mm -hmm. uh, something like a human, anyways. Uh, and and he created a, a model to, um, with um, Ron Seguin. He, he, Ron Seguin used to work here and worked in exhibits, and they developed this model together of this sort of uh, humanoid dinosaur, as it yeah. were. And and yes, that that model still lives uh, in our in our collections. Uh, it, it gets around. It used to be in our coffee room, and we used to dress it up, but. Uh, <laughs> There's pictures of that thing out there on the internet, yeah. you know, dressed up in various ways. We moved it into our back down into collections during COVID because, of course, this building was empty and we wanted to uh, sort of, well, keep it safe, you know. So we decided to lock it up and we, we lovingly called the dinosauroid Herman. And so Herman is still locked up in collections. He is visible down there. That's cool. Well, it's an amazing <laughs> model. Say. It looks amazing. And, oh uh, yeah, it's it's terrific. Yeah, yeah and uh, I mean, you know, strange, come but... around the corner and and sort of see it out of the corner of your eye gives people a bit of a scare because he's got this, well, a human-like stature. And I should say, I'll give a plug maybe while I can, but in a few weeks' time, in the middle of October, we have our open house at our collections building in here in Gatineau, Quebec. Mm. Uh, museum the museum displays are back in Ottawa, but. Um, our collections building is, is over here in Gatineau. And we have an open house where we open up the collections to the general public that they can come in and give self-guided tours and see what's in our collections. And we've got the various researchers and assistants and curators and technicians here to answer questions uh, that the public might have. 
and that is on Saturday, October 14th. Hopefully this might be out by then. I don't know. Oh, yeah. But, uh, It'll be out tomorrow. Don't worry. <laughs> all excellent. Well, in that case, uh, you know, if you should happen to be in the Ottawa area, then um, it's it's worth coming to uh, to our open house and and you can see the dinosaur right while you're here. Mm -hmm. Well, he's one of a kind, and he's fascinating, and he's world famous. Um, he's and he looks really wild. <sighs> yeah, well, you know, Dale, the, Dale, who it, dinosaur ride was was Dale Russell's brainchild, and of course, Dale passed away now uh, back in. I think it was 2019. Uh, uh, no, no, sorry. Yeah, 2019, right before COVID hit. And um, and so I, 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 there was a lot of talk about Dale afterwards. I, I co-edited a special volume in, in his honor in the Canadian Journal of Earth Sciences. And and so his research kind of came to the fore once he, he passed away. And uh, much of the discussion about uh, the dinosauroid was was sort of re reignited following his passing. So it's it's forever out there, mm -hmm. you know. It that the dinosauroid has probably got, for better or worse, is probably the most discussed piece of of research, uh, if I can use that term loosely, to come out of the Canadian Museum of Nature <laughs> than anything else we've done. Dale would have. Dale was looking to spark discussion with that, and boy, did he ever! Because mm -hmm. we're still talking about it all these decades later. So I think he'd be quite uh, quite pleased about that fact. Well, that's, and, and it's an interesting experiment in, uh, I guess, speculative evolution. But another piece that you have there, I think, uh, that is less speculative. Well, maybe speculation still goes into it. You guys have the tiktolic. Uh, or you have a TikTok, is that correct? You have one of those strange lobe-thin fish from, from none of it in there? Yeah, the so-called fishapod, TikTalic, yeah, that made international headlines when it came out. What? How long ago would that have been? 15 years ago now? Something like that? 10 yeah. to 15 years? What a strange animal that one is. <laughs> yeah, we have that. We have the holotype of that thing in uh, in our collections too. Wow. Although I I need to be careful because technically it's not a, a museum of nature specimen. That specimen belongs to the province of Nunavut, where it was found. However, Nunavut does not have a museum yet, hmm. um, and so we hold it in trust for them. They basically pay us to to curate and house uh, their their fossil collections. So we do have that in our collections here in our Gatineau Research and Collections facility, but it's technically not ours. But but yeah, it's um, it's fun to it's fun to look at that thing. It's like seeing the Mona Lisa. You mm -hmm. know, it's this one kind, highly important fossil that you know talks a lot about not just the origins of of us as human beings, but the origins of tetrapods as a whole. You know, four-legged animals. Mm -hmm or four-limbed animals, if you want to put it that way. So, yeah, it's it's quite special, and we're lucky that we're able to, to house that thing. Yeah, that's really cool. Well, for the interests of time, because I know we're up against it. I wanted to to say uh, why I wanted you. And I'm so happy to have you here for the last uh, for the last episode. You don't have to remember this because I'm sure you do lots of media. But I reached out back in uh, 
2017 to, to talk to somebody because we were doing a, a Canada 150th anniversary celebration for a commemorative issue for uh, for the newspaper I was working at at the time. And we were putting together stories that celebrated Canadian things. And it was a rare opportunity for me, because uh, nobody else was going to do this, to talk about Canadian dinosaurs and to talk about Canadian contributions to paleontology. And so when I started asking around, I was uh, able to get connected to you. And uh, I spoke with Dr. Uh, Francois Terrien at the Tyrell, and uh, had uh, you were really, really forthcoming. Uh, you shared all kinds of details about the Sternbergs and uh, and the history of, of Canadian paleontology. I was able to write two stories. They only wrote one of them, or they only published one of them. But uh, uh, you never get a chance to write about dinosaurs, and so it was a wonderful chance for me to do that. And um, flash forward, you know, a couple years later, when I go to start this podcast. Wasn't sure who the heck I was going to be able to get on this thing. Yeah, no idea. And so I felt a little slimy using that old contact info again. But uh, you came through and uh, you've been you've been forthcoming and generous with your time. And, and uh, really, if you hadn't if I hadn't had a great experience with you, I don't know if I would have had the courage or the enthusiasm to reach out to anybody else uh, in the scientific field. So uh, it was by your good nature, I think that uh, any success that this has had uh, has been in, in thanks to the inspiration that you, you've provided. So I want to say thank you very much for that. It meant a lot. Well, thank you. Yeah, no, I, I, I do have a foggy memory of you reaching back all those years ago about that article. Uh, now that you mentioned it's been a while, but uh, yeah. now that you mentioned I do have a, a, that foggy memory. But yeah, no, your podcast seems to be doing well. You've had some great guests on it. I know you, I think the last one, I, I have listened to a number of the episodes. The oh. last one was Riccio which was a very interesting uh, interview. And of course you've had uh, one of my uh, sort of mentors, Peter Dodson, which was a fun listen too. So one of the fascinating well, things that he told me and that you would have heard, uh, and it's related to what you do with the centrosaurs and Spiclipius and the Triceratops and all of that, is that he thought when he got into dinosaurs that he had found the last of the Ceratopsians, that there were no new ones to discover. <laughs> which is fascinating because uh, since he uh, believed that, um, obviously there's been so much more to be understood about Ceratopsians, and that's uh, what a fascinating thing. Well, yeah, what a what good luck I had to have Peter come on too, for sure. Oh yeah, yeah, you know his he's one of his best known books. Uh, he wrote he literally wrote the book on horned dinosaurs, yeah. and um, yeah. and yeah, at the time uh, he I, I believe Avaceratops then. The last dinosaur that, that he had coined at, at the time of writing was, uh, I think, written, uh, he, he coined that name in 1986 or, or thereabouts. And the last dinosaur before that was Pachyrhinosaurus, I believe, back in 1950. So there had been, you know, uh, almost 40 years uh, between new taxa being named. And, and certainly since that book was written, we've more than doubled the n number of known horned dinosaurs. And that book wasn't written that long ago. I think it was 1996 or thereabouts. So hmm. um, we're living in the golden age, not just of horned dinosaurs, but dinosaurs, uh, period. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Well, I'm happy to be here. <laughs> <laughs> Likewise, yeah. Um, so, uh, on the theme of endings and stuff like that, um, this has been a significant project that I put a lot of myself into, and I've had a really good time putting it all together. Uh, it's been rewarding in a lot of ways, but uh, how to end things is never easy for me. What would you recommend? Do you just like shake hands and say it wasn't you, it was me, or uh, how do you <laughs> just play Freebird and go off into the sunset? How do you uh, how do you yeah. think ending things should go? Well, you know, I uh, 
as a dinosaur paleontologist, I might be somewhat biased. So I would say pray for a meteor mm -hmm. and just have the damn thing end it all. <laughs> well, I wondered if maybe going back to the very beginning would be a good place to, to, to start talking about the ending. And so if we go back to the 90s before Jurassic Park was a, you know, two trilogies and a Netflix series and thousands of merchandise products. You'd mentioned that Jurassic Park was a foundational inspiration for your interest in paleontology and it led towards you becoming uh, a paleontologist. I looked at other movies from 93. The Fugitive, not a great career uh, ambition. Rookie of the Year, you could have been an injured starting pitcher in the major leagues. And uh, there was Mrs. Doubtfire if you wanted to be a cross-dressing nanny. But I think I think Jurassic Park was probably the right place to look for career advice. So, <laughs> Yeah, I... Uh... Given the alternatives, I think I'm happy with where I ended up. Has becoming a paleontologist been everything that the, the 1993 Jordan thought it might be? Oh, boy. Good question. Well, I, you know, the I was 11 in 1993. <laughs> and I think, I think I probably mentioned on the first time I was on your podcast was just, you know, I, I saw it when I was 11 in theaters. Uh, my dad took me to see it after a sort of a graduation gift for graduating grade five. Uh, and I, you know, back then I, I really didn't know what a paleontologist was, to be honest with you. I knew it was someone that, that studied dinosaurs and that's what I wanted to do. But, uh, you know, at the, I was just a kid at the time and, and really had no idea, uh, what a paleontologist did from day to day. Uh, and so I think in that respect, I, I, I didn't know what to expect. Uh, was an ex I don't think I anticipated having students of my own working with me i don't think i anticipated all the grant writing and <laughs> proposal writing and all the administrative work that comes with working uh be it in a museum or a university you know my my image of paleontology after watching jurassic park was uh alan grant and you know he was out of his element <laughs> in a sense in that in that he was just running, uh, running away from living dinosaurs, which is not at all what a paleontologist does. So, uh, having said all that, I have absolutely no regrets. Uh, it's everything that I that I hoped it would be. It, uh, it puts a smile on my face every day. I'm one of the lucky ones. First of all, that was a great answer. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, do you think that little Tim Murphy, the human piece of toast, might have made a good paleontologist when he grew up? He was about that age too when uh, when he also got to see Jurassic Park for the first time. <laughs> yeah, uh, good question. You know, um, would he have made a good pick after what he went through? Uh, I suspect that Tim probably would ha want nothing to have to do with dinosaurs after that. So, would he have made a good paleontologist? I don't know. Probably not. I, I think he'd he'd never want to see a dinosaur again in his life after that i could see him being the sarah connor of the jurassic park universe that uh, is just waiting for the day that the, finally the dinosaurs hit the mainland and she's been preparing all her life <laughs> yeah, waiting, <laughs> it's judgment day gun on the shoreline or something <laughs> like that yeah i just watched uh, terminator 2 again recently good so answer that that's a good answer it's fresh in my mind yeah, <laughs> such a i think so i've never i saw it not long ago but I taped it and whatever. I've never felt, I haven't felt that cool ever is watching it again. Terminator 2 is amazing. <laughs> it's so exciting. Well, you know, I, I talk about Jurassic Park and the influence that it had on me as a young kid, but uh, 
Terminator 2 was right up there too as yeah. one of my favorite favorite movies and it scared the you know what out of me seeing that uh at such a young age i i saw that movie even before i saw jurassic park but it it, it it's one of those movies that sticks with you well hey give us i don't know three years with more artificial intelligence development and we'll all get to be sarah connor soon um <laughs> uh, no, hopefully not <laughs> hopefully not but like it's the same with jurassic park if we can clone dinosaurs we will and it'll it'll kill all of us and ai is just going to beat dinosaurs to the punch i think but um we're on our way. <sighs> well, wow, that, you, were, you were asking about how to end it. <laughs> on a high note, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, we have just moments to go. Maybe we will talk about the very ending of the book. Um, I remember at the very end, you get... Um, basically, they're all kind of seconded at a hotel, and they're not allowed to leave Costa Rica, Alan and the kids. And I presume Ellie, we don't hear from her, Muldoon and the others, we don't really hear from them. But the primatologist, the ecologist from the beginning of the book, Dr. Gutierrez, returns. And he sits down with Grant, and he says, you know, the Costa Rican government doesn't know what to do with you guys. And they're not happy. They're not going to let anybody go until they, until they are happy. And uh, the final words, you know, are enjoy your stay with us dr grant it's a lovely country here to which grant answers you're telling me we're not going anywhere and the last words of the book are none of us is going anywhere dr grant and he turns and walks back toward the hotel entrance and i thought that has always been so unsettling that there's not this closure there's no happy ending there's no poetic justice it's just this weird literally you close the chapter on their lives and you don't get to hear what happens next and uh i wonder like this so unnerving but maybe that gives the book part of its eerie quality as well that you don't get a, a bow on the present at the end yeah well it's been a while since i've thought about or certainly since i've read that book but i, I do recall that ending and um yeah it does make you wonder what michael Crichton, what what he was thinking i, I don't know if he was thinking about uh a second novel at that time and, and taking off from there who knows but uh yeah, uh, you know, it would have been especially traumatic, I think, for Alan Grant, given that uh, um, you can't do your work in a jungle. <laughs> <laughs> you know, as a paleontologist, you want lots of rock exposure and as few plants as you can get. Yeah, I don't know what he, he, he would have been wasting away somewhere, maybe on a beach, maybe with a pina colada. But uh, I don't think he he would not have been able to do what he wanted to do. And so, yeah, it would it would have been a an especially uh, traumatic situation to be in for mm -hmm. a paleontologist. As comfortable as the accommodations would have been, I think, because I think they were taking care of them. Yeah, being trapped. Is... I'd have enjoyed it for a few weeks. Let's <laughs> just, uh, you know. Well, they're supposed to be back to wrap up their site, I think, weren't they? They're supposed to go back to Monta Snake Water, Montana, and, uh, and close out their site. Yeah, today. they were digging up a. They were digging up a velociraptor or Deinonychus or whatever out there, weren't they? Mm. Yeah. And uh, hopefully, hopefully Grant had some grad students who could carry on that work for him. I think he needed a doctor, too, because if I recall, he was kicked by a Tyrannosaur and had a gash up his front. I think he was attacked by Velociraptors when he was doing that tossing eggs in the hatchery. And I think he got a, a slash down the back. So I think he probably had a couple wounds to, to nurse as well. <laughs> Maybe a couple stitches. Yeah. And with what we just talked about with what Tim went through, maybe Grant was in no rush to get back to study dinosaurs, too. <laughs> fair that's fair <laughs> well into uncertain futures for everyone i guess <laughs> who knows what tomorrow holds that's uh that's my sign off <laughs>
Well, on that note, thank you so much for coming back. I really appreciate all the time you've given me and uh, over the years. It's been uh, meant a lot. I appreciate it very much. Glad to do it, Ryan. Thanks for having me. And if you, who knows, if you do a podcast about the lost world, I'll be happy to join you again. Oh, you're too kind. Thanks so much. All right, a terrific thank you to, to Dr. Jordan Mallon. Thank you for coming back on the show. I really appreciate it. Thanks for, for being so forthcoming uh, over all this time that we've known each other. Uh, this week's text is Epilogue, San Jose, spanning from pages 397 to the end, 399. In a synopsis, several days have passed since the InGen incident in Costa Rica doesn't know what to do with the Americans they've rescued from Isla Nublar. At a hotel where the Americans are being kept, Dr. Marty Gutierrez visits to speak with Dr. Grant to ask some questions. But the reality is, after what happened at Jurassic Park, nobody is going anywhere anytime soon. Characters, there's, an, there's a man from the American Embassy. This figure visits regularly with, with, our cast of, with our cast of survivors who have been put up in a nice hotel in San Jose. He is a young man, we're told on page 397, who helps them with the, you know, whatever they need, and explains that Washington is doing everything it can to hasten their release from Costa Rica. He explains that an ecological disaster had been narrowly averted, and many people had died on a terrestrial possession of Costa Rica, where the government believes that they were misled and deceived by John Hammond and his plans for that island. Under the circumstances, the Costa Rican government was not disposed to release survivors in a hurry. We're told on 398. John Hammond, the Costa Rican government feels that it was misled and deceived by Hammond when they leased him the island, and even though, quote, days have passed, Hammond's burial has not been permitted on 398. Dr. Ian Malcolm. Malcolm's body has not been permitted a burial by the Costa Rican government either because of their concern for what had happened on their territorial possession done under false pretenses. We're also told on 398. Dr. Alan Grant. It feels to Grant over this time span that he's taken to a different government office each day to be questioned by, quote, another courteous, intelligent government officer on 398. He answers questions on how he met John Hammond, what Grant knew of Hammond's project, how Grant had received the facts from New York why Grant had gone to the island and what had happened on the island. He was asked the same questions over and over. He believed that this was because the government thought they were lying, but it felt more like, after a period of time, that the government was simply waiting, though Grant couldn't imagine what for. He meets Dr. Gutierrez by the pool one day. Upon meeting Dr. Gutierrez, Grant recognizes his name from the Procom Ignatius X-ray he received over the facts the other day on 398. Uh, Grant is eager to return to Montana, and his dig site, noting, quote, I have only a few days left to dig before the winter sets in, where he adds, the first winter snows arrive in August in Montana. He agrees with Gutierrez that Hammond was probably financing northern digs because, quote, intact genetic material from dinosaurs was more likely to be recovered from cold climates on 398, and he doesn't agree that Hammond was a clever man. When Grant is told by Gutierrez about the strange crop-eating patterns observed lately by the Costa Rican government, which moves in a straight arrow to, into the jungle... Grant recognizes the pattern as being a migration on 399, and he's curious what types of crops they were eating. Grant couldn't say whether there are, there are more dinosaurs on the mainland or not, but he suspects there are. And with that, Gutierrez tells him that the kids will likely be sent home, indicating that Grant and the other Americans will not be sent home anytime soon. Tim Murphy, he's splashing in the pool with his sister at the hotel on page 398, and according to Dr. Gutierrez, there's no reason to keep the kids at the hotel much longer, and they'll likely be sent home, we're told on 399. And Lex Murphy, she also shares in the same activities as Tim, she's splashing in the pool with her brother at the hotel on 398. Dr. Marty Gutierrez, Marty returns! Remember him from way back on page 25? He's the bearded American with a southern accent, and he introduces himself to Dr. Grant as a researcher at Carrera Station on 398. Gutierrez asks if the cold weather climate in Montana is correlated to why Hammond only funded cold weather dig sites, quote, because intact genetic material from dinosaurs was more likely to be recovered from cold climates. 
Gutierrez concedes that Hammond must have been a very clever man. Then Gutierrez gets down to the truth of the matter with Grant. Quote, the authorities won't tell you this, but some unknown animals ate the crops in a very peculiar manner. They moved each day in a straight line, almost as straight as an arrow, from the coast into the mountains into the jungle on 398 and 399. Gutierrez reveals that the animals were also eating crops rich in lysine in 399, agama beans, soy, and sometimes chickens, that their disappearance into the Ismaloya Mountains makes them as good as gone. Gutierrez doesn't know whether there are more dinosaurs on the loose or not, but he agrees that some possibly have. With Grant in agreement, he pulls out his chair, waves to the kids, and admits, none of us is going anywhere, Dr. Grant. And then he turns and exits the hotel on page 399. We have the Costa Rican government. Uh, they feel deceived and misled by Hammond, and now we're taking their time with releasing the survivors from the island. Gutierrez says... They won't tell Grant about the strange migrating animals that are eating crops rich in lysine because, quote, they're afraid and perhaps also resentful of you for what you have done on 398. Uh, they are likely worried that there, are, that there are more animals, that there is more trouble, and they're being cautious on 399. They're plenty fine keeping Grant, Sattler, Gennaro, and Harding, I suppose, and the workmen all at this hotel until there's certainty whether there is an ecological disaster occurring with escaped dinosaurs or not. We have localities. There's uh, the hotel. This is a nice hotel in San Jose, Costa Rica on 397. Stylistic techniques. We have an ellipses. And we are being kept here because ellipsis on 399 asks Grant, with the ellipsis being an open-ended question, leaving the space as an invitation for a good answer from Gutierrez. We have some metonymy. If you remember, the uh, metonymy is when a piece of something represents a greater whole. Uh, and it's a type of metaphor. We have the uh, the sentence, the American embassy came to visit them to ask if they needed anything and to explain that Washington was doing everything it could to hasten their departure on page 397. And of course, Washington refers to the American government. Uh, it doesn't actually mean a guy Washington or the city Washington. It is not actually doing something. They're referring to the powers of America by when they when they refer to Washington. So that's, a, that's one literary technique there. And... Um, of course, when they describe the, the crops being eaten in a straight line, as straight as an arrow, that is a simile, indicating that an arrow is a very straight um, tool. Obviously, an arrow does not travel in a straight line, although we sort of refer to an arrow as a straight line, but uh, <laughs> I think it's indicating a very straight, just straight out straight. Let's get into our discussion section. We have cloning dinosaurs. Marty Gutierrez returns. He's supposing that Hammond only funded cold weather digs because that helped preserve DNA for his extraction processes or something like that. And this is the last mystery that Crichton is finally going to answer in this novel. Why was Hammond investing only in northern digs? That's kind of been one that began way back in the beginning. Uh, quote, because intact genetic material from dinosaurs is more likely to be recovered from cold climates. Uh, and does this hold up to scientific scrutiny? No, the facts are... Uh, that I've been able to piece together anyhow, say that A, fossilized bones do not contain DNA, the same process by which minerals enter into the bone, replacing the organic material and turning it to stone, is the same process which washes away any genetic material. Uh, so you cannot find a rock, a fossil anyhow, uh, with, with DNA in it. Soft tissues have been recovered. I don't think there's going to be any DNA recovered in them either. Uh, maybe if they're much more recent, but tens of millions of years old, I don't think so. But uh, I'm willing to be wrong on that. Uh, but B, even if DNA didn't wash away during fossilization, the concept that DNA was somehow baked out of the bones if the temperatures were too hot is equally dubious, especially considering that the landscapes of northern latitudes have experienced many temperatures spanning from very hot to very cold for many millennia. 
In the scope of geological time, today's present climates represent an infinitesimally small moment in time. That today's present weather temperatures would somehow be a factor in the preservation of a fossils that's 200 or 100 or even 50 million years old is balderdash. Surely, over those millennia, the temperatures have been significantly hotter and colder than anything our present range of temperatures reach. To such a degree that, again, today's present temperature should not be an indication or a deciding factor on whether or not DNA has been preserved in a fossil. Uh, and C, a bunch of these dinosaurs aren't even from northern digs. What makes a dig northern? Is that Does that mean anywhere in the northern hemisphere, of which almost all of them except for the Cyrodactylus would be? At the 30 degree mark, that could be northern. Uh, it's noted that there's a distinct trade wind uh, that changes the, the temperature of things, producing a more distinct northern atmosphere north of the 30. But, uh, I mean, really, when you get into the, the real north, talking like the 40th parallel, we're, you know, we're looking at ranges between Germany and Alberta, where the Compies, the Oplocephalids, and the Styracosaurs are from. And, uh, and two of those animals, the Oplocephalus and the Styracosaurus, aren't even in the book. I mean, they are, but they aren't described, they aren't shown to us. They're just two of the dinosaurs of, among the bunch that they have that are included. So <laughs> does the Northern Dig thing really pay off? Not really. There's a reason, I guess, is just sort of tossed in here at the very end for the sake of wrapping things up, I guess. Uh, but it's not a fundamental, interesting mystery that uh, we, we're clinging to going, aha, this is the end, and now we know. Uh, and speaking of the end, the ending. I, I never felt comfortable with the final words of this novel. There's something really eerie about how it ends. Enjoy or stay with us, Dr. Grant. It is a lovely country here. You're telling me we're not going anywhere? None of us is going anywhere, Dr. Grant. The end. Does Grant ever get out of here? Well, using only Jurassic Park as a, a source of reference, and not the sequel that Crichton never intended on writing, until the film absolutely made it a necessity, I think there are some answers from the introduction. On October 5th, 1989, we are told, International Genetic Technologies filed for Chapter 11 protection. Now, I presume that Grant and the Americans were released after whatever settlements were agreed to. Recall, quote, a few court documents were made public since the creditors were Japanese investment consortia, which traditionally shunned publicity. Daniel Ross, remember him from episode 10, Cowan, Swain, and Ross, we're told he was integral in negotiating the settlement between InGen and the Japanese investors. And knowing that Cowan, Swain, and Ross were liable in some matters, of course they wanted to keep this out of the press, too. It's said, too, that there was, quote, a rather unusual petition of the vice consul of Costa Rica that was, quote, heard behind closed doors. Within a month, from the end of August to the beginning of October, that's about a month, right? That's the month of September. Um, that's the month it's referring to here. Uh, the problems of InGen were quietly and amicably settled, we were told in the introduction. So, presumably, by October, everything was amicably settled. And I hope the Costa Rican government and Grant and Sattler and whomever else was being sequestered in this hotel were amicably sent on their way, or on their separate ways. Uh, Grant will certainly get out of there, but it may take, you know, about a month for him to get out of there. The sequel we don't get. So if the, the Costa Ricans were, were so worried that an ecological disaster was on the brink, and they were detaining doctors Grant and Harding as well as Gennaro and Sattler until they were certain that there were no dinosaurs running around in Costa Rica, then the logical next episode for them to earn their freedom have this team of Americans partner with Marty Gutierrez in a jungle adventure searching for the lost dinosaurs of the Ismaloya Mountains. That could have been a really cool adventure. We, what we got was a lost world, a near beat-for-beat -beat retelling of Jurassic Park with the resurrected Ian Malcolm leading a team against a set of nastier, meaner villains on, on an island with nastier, meaner dinosaurs. And that was cool, too. But that could have been the third novel. Recall, in The Lost World, the Costa Ricans are still really paranoid about dinosaur carcasses washing up on the beaches and stuff. Maybe there's a sequel in the middle there somewhere that, uh, that wasn't made. And that would have been fun. 
They could have been out in the wild pursuing and observing live dinosaurs in a wild environment for the first time since the Mesozoic. That would have been an interesting story because dinosaurs are awesome. Before we wrap up, I want to revisit a comment from the Paleocast's Dave Marshall, who challenged me back in episode 21 asking, what's so great about dinosaurs? And I misunderstood the question when he asked it. He wasn't suggesting that dinosaurs aren't great, necessarily. I, th I think probably he was saying that. <laughs> but, but, um, but he was really getting at this, that what's so great about dinosaurs is also what's so great about all paleontology and, in a way, about all the sciences. Dinosaurs are not special for being strange and confusing and awe-inspiring. If you love dinosaurs because they're strange and weird and confusing and mysterious, guess what? The world's history of extinct animals is filled with the exact same things. There's a vast number of different extinct lineages that evolved features you can't wrap your head around, which spanned in sizes that boggle the mind and existed in paleo environments that require true imaginative dedication to envision. The same with geologically ancient animals of the deep past, like Dave's Eurypterids and Chelicerids and Paleo Joe's Trilobites. Freakishly unusual, spanning in sizes from small and horrifyingly large, and had features that are stranger than fiction. Some biospheres are microscopic, but that doesn't mean that even though microscopic, those ecosystems weren't filled with incredibly weird and fascinating shapes and sizes, forms, and ecological niches. Maybe worms aren't that interesting, maybe. But, but you pick any ecosystem, any organism, and start looking at them with the deep fascination you might to a dinosaur, and I'm confident the fandom you feel for dinosaurs can easily transcend into new, unusual, and perhaps unpredictable spheres of interest. If you love dinosaurs, they can be just the tip of the iceberg. There are no limits. You can fit more than just dinosaurs in your heart if you wanted. Your heart has an unlimited capacity for love. And with an unlimited capacity to love, truly, you can fit the entire world in there. Uh, you can have it all. I hope I'm not the first to tell you that, but uh, through love, there are, are no limits. But, you know, if uh, this discussion is turning to sequels and life lessons, there, there must be one thing. We've run out of, uh, of novel to read. The end of the epilogue is here. Looking back to the pilot episode, when I set out to produce this show, the mission was to dig deep into the dinosaurs in the novel, the characters, the plot, the hubris, cultural references, literary styles and techniques, and I think we did that, folks. My copies of the novel were already falling apart at the beginning, but we, we pulled these things further apart, reading between the lines and connecting dots that were never on the page, and extrapolating the mythology and dissected all the elements, and I think we've come to really know of this book. Just about as well as anybody is going to, I guess, right? So, mission accomplished? If it is, it's entirely thanks to all the help I've had along the way. A big thank you to Phil and Lindsay Longprey, Adam Leggett, Christoph Oaks, my buddy Rob, Paleo Joe Cottle, Downtown Robbie Brown, Justin Kylie, Jamie Rayum, Gavin Michael Booth, Victor Yates, Sullivan Rogers, Phil Hoare, Steve Bull, Robbie Dorman, Mike Evans, it's his birthday today. This will come up tomorrow, but it's his birthday today. Happy birthday, Mike. Chris McDonald, Danielle Weigel, Ben Lewis, Dan Rose, Matt Bufton from the Curious Task podcast, Drew Hagen, Chris Creamer, Melissa Ray, thank you, ornithologist Dr. Roger Lederer, Jurassic Tom Fishenden, Zoe Handley, Garrett and Sabrina from the I Know Dino podcast, Cole Medeiros, Adam Buck, Lindsay Kinsella, Roselle Lim, Mike from Mike's Book Reviews, Matt Kelly, Matthew Milligan, Ethan Ullman, and Dave Rossi. And all the paleontologists who are incredibly forthcoming to join the show, uh, including paleontologists Dr. Jordan Mallon, uh, Dr. David Hone, Dr. Rohenia Gold, Drs. Will Harris and David Moscato from the Common Descent Podcast, Dave Marshall from the Paleocast, Drs. Adam Pritchard and Matthew Bortz uh, from the Past Time Podcast, Rebecca Hunt Foster, Dr. Scott Persons, Dr. Elizabeth Jones, Dr. Jim Kirkland, Dr. Ali Nabavizadeh, thank you, 
Dr. Tom Holtz Jr., Dr. Jingmei O'Connor, Dr. Darren Nash, Dr. David Verecchio, Dr. Peter Dodson, and Dr. Spencer Lucas. And the incredible paleo artist and illustrator from my childhood, Douglas Henderson. Thanks so much. And this is going to feel like rock room, but uh, thank you to, in no particular order, Noof, Butter, Felix, Shelley, Mom and Dad, Scott, Elena, Dr. Carpenter, Dr. Arbor, Alyssa, Snail the Rock Band, Rob, Derek, Val, Dr. Suze, Talia, Ken, Mike, Ali, Matt, Brendan, Jeff, Eleanor, Mark, Samantha, Greg, the guy from Toilet Talk Comics, Daryl, Noah, Kate, David, Jocelyn, Marianne, Matt, Jeff, JP, Justin, Zach, Zach, I know you've been listening, Lindsay, and Dave Vercina for sending me all those Jurassic Park memes all this time, Sean, Carrie, Joe, Nick, T, Tony, Tone, Cynthia, Egypticus, Lenny, Dave, Graham, Eric, Megan, Mackenzie, and my apologies to anyone that I missed. Wasn't that cool, guys? I'm shaking it. All right, this is the end. The show may return, but it won't be a chapter-by-chapter breakdown of Michael Creighton's 1990 novel Jurassic Park anymore. We, we just did that. So I'll just say don't delete the show from your library. And if you want to come on the show, drop me a line and we can try and set something up. It just might be a little bit different. I can still tape my copies of the book back together so we can tear it apart some more. I'll continue to be available at ryanesrogers at gmail.com. We could chat about what on earth the iterations all mean, or how minor characters like Ed Regis play into the overall themes of the novel. Things like that, maybe? Who knows? Who knows what the future holds? The Jurassic Park cast has been a part of the Spring Chickens banner of amateur intellectual properties, including the Spring Chickens funny pages, Tomb of the Undead graphic novel, the Second Lapse graphic novelettes, The Infantry and the Worst of Them All, The King Street Capers. You can find links to all that baggage in the show notes or by visiting the schickens.blogspot.com or finding us on Facebook at facebook.com slash springchickencapers or me, I'm on X at rogersryan22. This has been the Jurassic Park cast, the Jurassic Park podcast where we talked about the novel Jurassic Park and also not that too. Thank you. I mean it. I'm glad you tuned in. I guess let me leave you with this final thing. What's so great about Jurassic Park and dinosaurs is what's so great about everything. That childish excitement to wonder what it would have been like whether back in the days of the dinosaurs it would actually be a Jurassic Park itself. This type of wonder is universally relatable from all our youths, and it's anchored in our shared fundamental character trait of curiosity. Jurassic Park is a work of fiction, and the big mysterious dinosaurs of the past have been gone for millennia, but the world is still full of wonder. Sometimes it makes us shake our heads in disappointment. Sometimes it makes us drop our jaws in astonishment. But with a healthy dose of humility and accepting that the truth with a capital T is really beyond our reach, be curious. Don't be afraid to ask questions. And never get too old to ask someone you just met, hey, what's your favorite dinosaur? <laughs>